almost exactly 2,233 years ago today, the Carthaginian general Hannibal achieved the largest, most successful ambush in all of military history. Uh, the date was June 24th, 217 B.C., occurred right here at Trisemenus uh, in north-central Italy. There's a great deal about Hannibal's tactics to admire in this battle. I wish I had time to walk you through them all. They're fascinating. L let, me just, let me just point to his most significant move. His most significant move in this battle took place right here in these, in these wooded ridges uh, right above Lake Trasimene. Desperate, desperate to draw the Roman army out into a pitched battle, Hannibal placed his camp right next to the Malpasso Road, okay? The, the road and the Carthaginian camp were placed in a low defile. The white here is low territory. The, the brown is higher hills. And so you see how he put his camp right between those high hills. This is insane. It's just insane. He did it very ostentatiously. Did it in the middle of the daytime. They, they set up their camp. They built their whole camp right in the view of Rome and, and the Roman army and all of their allies. It made Hannibal look like an idiot. He's trapping his camp in a tight place with no room to maneuver right next to heavily wooded hills, right next to very deep water. This is ridiculous. The Romans are licking their jobs. But when night was full dark, Hannibal moved thousands and thousands of men. He moved his Celtic and Spanish infantry up into the wooded hills along the road. And then he took his, his cavalry and his Gauls and he put them way back at the very entrance to the canyon area um, along the, the north side of the road as well. Finally, he had his men light really huge campfires, really big bonfires uh, at the spot of their camp and even further along the road to convince the Romans that they were still there in the low place in the canyon. When the Romans attacked rashly the next day, and by the way, the Roman general Flaminius was furious with Hannibal. He hated him and was mad at him over some past battles. When Flaminius attacked, he ran the Roman army right into Hannibal's trap. The Carthaginians dropped from the hills. They cut off the road, and then they just poured into the Roman flanks. The Romans could form no line. They were forced down into the lake. 15,000 soldiers. Folks, that's fully half of the Roman army were killed that day, including Flaminius was killed. Most of them died by drowning because, as you probably know, uh, water and chariots and armor don't mix. Um, now, I have no idea where Hannibal got the idea for this brilliant trap. I do know that he was from North Africa. And I know that 1,200 years before Hannibal was born, North Africa was the site of a very similar maneuver which became quite famous. The rash, angry, pursuing army in that earlier battle was Egyptian. The supposedly trapped army that springs an ambush was Hebrew. And the brilliant battle tactician, well, that was God himself. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 14. Let me show you. Look at how God draws Pharaoh out. Okay, Exodus, second book of your Bible, chapter 14. Pick it up at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihahirot, between Migdal and the sea, you must camp in front of Baal Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they're wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I, Yahweh, will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We've released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. 
the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out triumphantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen, his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pihahirot in front of Baal Ziphron. Stop there. God snookers Pharaoh into an engagement the exact same way that Hannibal will later draw out Flaminius. By the way, that's the title you find there in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in, right? Uh, open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see our first major section is called God Draws Pharaoh Out. The trap is ingenious. Notice how God has the Israelite columns double back before Pihahirot between the Red Sea and Migdal. And by the way, that very term Migdal tells you what is going on here. To describe that, though, I have to first introduce you to somebody else, okay? Migdal is the key word in your text, but to understand it, I've got to introduce you to this fascinating man, Jean-Francois Champignon. Uh, Champignon was a young French genius who was so good with languages that some very wise person let Jean-Francois take a crack at the great mystery of the 19th century. You know what the great mystery of the early 19th century was? It was this rock, this rock right here called the Rosetta Stone. It had three different types of writing on it. It was discovered by archaeologists who were moving along with Napoleon as he was conquering Egypt. And the Rosetta Stone seemed to, un to hold the, the key to understanding the completely lost language of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Building on the work of another genius, the Brit uh, Thomas Young, Jean-Francois Champollion broke the code. He proved that the Egyptian writing system was a combination of phonetic symbols and ideographic signs. By the way, the only language in the world ever studied at that point that had that particular combination. I Just stop right there. I know, what you're I know what you're thinking. In that French voice that you use when you're frustrated, you're saying, Sacre bleu! What does he say to do with the Babel? Thank you for asking. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. I wanted you to know Jean-Francois so that you could appreciate what he said about the keyword in our text, the place name Migdal. He gave this expert opinion. Look what he said. The name is written in Egyptian, I'm sorry. The name is written in Egyptian, Magtol, which means abundance of hills, which as a foreign name, the Hebrews appear to have changed into Migdal. He goes on to note that Migdal meant terror in Hebrew, terror. And over time, it came to mean tower as well. Migdal is thus a tower of terror long before Disney ever built a single ride, right? And one can certainly understand why Migdal meant Tower of Terror. Here are the Hebrews at this place that they named Migdal because they're trapped between towers of hills and a body of water with an angry army seeing them as easy pickings. That is terrifying. They appear to be trapped. Though, of course, it's the Egyptians who are really going to be trapped. Now, the next question everybody always wants answered is the one that I promised last time we met, I promised we would take this on. Where did all this occur, right? What is the actual official route of the Exodus? You ready for the bottom line answer? Oh, you've been waiting. I don't know. I don't know. No one knows for certain. There are three possibilities that have considerable archaeological support, although none of them is conclusive. Despite what their ardent supporters claim, none of them is conclusive. Here are the options. Option number one, uh, this is the most common traditional idea. Its main support comes from the, uh, the place name that has persisted through history that this area is called Sinai, and thus the assumption is this mountain down here is Mount Sinai, the one to which they went to get the law. Uh, if this is the case, then Israel was attacked by Egypt fairly early in their journey, only a few days in, and they were attacked right here, and Pahihurot is right there on the west side of that branch of the Red Sea. Another possibility is this one. 
Israel traveled for many, many weeks before Egypt recovered, and then Egypt took after them and caught up with them here uh, all the way across the Sinai Peninsula. In this one, the body of water they cross has to be the Gulf of Aqaba, and they're on their way to Mount Sinai, which in this view is in Midian, or modern-day Saudi Arabia. This does have the advantage of taking... Uh, this, this view has advantage of the greatest wind. Some of the greatest winds in the world are right here. These, these hills come together, and the wind gets funneled off the desert, and, and it has been observed in modern history even that the Red Sea will be parted because the wind is so strong there. This, this happens on occasion. Final possibility, sees Mount Sinai also in Midianite lands. Mount Sinai is still down here at Jebel Lauz, which I think is a far better understanding given the earliest chapters of Genesis. Given Moses' years in Midian, our laws seems the best site from Mount Sinai. We discussed that back in chapter 3. However, this third route has one other advantage to it, and that sees the Hebrews travel southerly uh, and thus avoid what were serious Egyptian military outposts all along this road across here. Which is it? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Any of these three possibilities sports a hilly place where Israel could have been trapped near the sea. I don't know which one of them is right. Here's what I do know, though, friends. The place isn't really important. What matters is the purpose. And the clear purpose of this entire activity is to glorify God. Remember, the most wonderful and important thing in life is to speak and live according to truth. And the truth is Yahweh is glorious. He's the why for every activity. Jean-Francois Champion would say that Yahweh is the raison de vivre. He is the reason for life. Look at your own church's summary of Scripture in your, in your mission statement as a church. In fact, read it with me. Mission statement of Frisco Bible. Let's read it together. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. That tells the who, what, how, and why of our church. And the why is to give glory to whom? To give glory to whom, everybody? To God. That's exactly what's transpiring in verse 4. God is leading Moses to engage in actions that will glorify Yahweh. There, there's a second purpose. It's hinted at in verses 5 through 9. God is stirring up Pharaoh in order to grant long-term peace for Israel's coming conquest of Canaan. Uh, a generation later, Joshua is going to lead Israel to a remarkable series of victories in Canaan. Those victories could not have been achieved if a, a strong and expansive Egypt were able to defend her interests in Canaan, right? That, that's why the military might of Egypt is coming here to where this ambush is being set so that Egypt will be crippled for a long generation and Israel can complete their conquest. With that in mind, let's pick up the story as Moses instructs Israel about all this. Go to verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? That's exactly how they said it, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians and die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Ah, how quickly human attitudes change. Look back at verse 8. Go back to verse 8. The word we translate triumphantly or defiantly, yade, 
literally means this part of the forearm, the, the ulna bone all the way up to the fingers, okay? It came to mean defiant or triumphant because, because of early fist bumps. That, that's what it's from, right? It, it, it was the fact that humans throughout all generations and all places and times do something like this when they're really triumphant. So Israel's marching out of Egypt, and they're looking look at Egypt like that, right? Yade, that's what it means. But now, when they see Pharaoh, once again, breaking a treaty, and coming for them, the Israelites cower. They whine. They even take to spouting nonsense in their fear. No arms are raised here anymore except, except in panic. And just as you parents say to your kids when they are in full panic mode, Moses says to Israel in verse 14, be silent. Hares is the root word here. It's, it's based on a really old term. In fact, it's a term that we find back in Abraham's day, back in old Babylon. Hares originally meant, you get this, Hares originally meant to dig into the earth with, with a plow. It, it came to mean settling down, being productive. Now, over time, this branch of the word signified being silent and still, not reacting to anything. Thus, this word would eventually be used in history of a deaf and dumb person. God says, be still. Not because you're deaf, not because you're dumb, but because his voice is louder than your fears. Dig in and rest in the Lord. And after all, isn't that what the great parent really wants, right? The great parent doesn't just want the whining to stop, however nice that is. The great parent wants their child to find peace, to plow into God's word as a means of comfort, even when life is legitimately scary. Of course, it's hard to effectively pass on what we haven't personally learned, right? So let's check our own souls. Before we tell anybody else to be still, before we try to comfort anybody else, let's check our own hearts. How well do you and I live in light of verse 13? Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. Think, think of the last storm you faced, which possibly is still raging. Did you endure by God's presence and His promise, or did you just collapse in fear and sin? Or, or, or did you squeak by through your own effort and your own bluster? This is the great issue of every day for every one of God's people. We are all going to face temptations and trials and struggles and places where we feel trapped. Only by God's grace can we learn to be quiet and stand firm, dug into the Lord. That's why a rabbi named Paul would later say to all of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, th this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Read with me. You take the underlined text. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Thank you. You will be able to endure it. That's exactly what we see next in Exodus 14. Look at the very next section, verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying to me? Right? Why are you crying to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army and his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. 
The pillar of cloud moved them from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. The cloud was there in the darkness, yet it lit up the night. So neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. Wow. One of the great true stories ever told. As we say on the right side of our notes, God provides a way out. First things first. In verse 15, God refocuses Moses. Listen, it can be so hard, but it is so important to keep your focus on the Lord and on what you know he has commanded, right? And this is especially true when you are being bombarded with people's complaints. How Moses feels here is how leaders often feel after meetings. It's how stay-at-home parents feel every day. Nibbled to death by ducks. Stressed out by all the complaints. The whininess and the grumpiness of people can get you off task. It, it can make the Lord's very clear instructions seem muddy and, and out of focus. I've personally experienced this. I've experienced this phenomenon while trying to lead God's wonderful people, especially trying to lead them through change. A, a capital campaign, a new mission, a big shift in policy. You know what it does. It leads to lots of understandable fear and lots of complaints. It's fine. It's normal. But the noise can become so deafening that I have to fight to keep my focus on the Lord. You see... We humans, often with good reason, we don't like to break camp. We don't, we don't enjoy moving into a death trap by fate. Even if God's presence is unmistakable, even if God's calling and word are clear, we don't like to do it. I love Dr. Kaiser's comment. Since God had promised Israel, since God had promised to bring Israel out of Egypt and give them the land of Canaan, then Moses and Israel had best stop their crying to high heaven and begin moving on, close quote. Spoken like a true grumpy old man. Isn't that great? <laughs> Listen, if God's people don't break camp, they will never move ahead in his promises. You've got to break camp to move ahead in God's promises. Now, of course, we can't follow if there's no work done to blaze a path for us, so God uses Moses to make a valley uh, in the sea. The word we translate divide, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means literally to make a valley. To the Hebrews, when you cut a watermelon in two, you know how they would have said it? Oh, you made a valley in that watermelon. That, that's how they spoke, and that's what Moses does. He makes a valley through the Red Sea. Now, to get two million Israelites across in a timely manner, that valley is probably something like three miles wide, although we, we don't know for certain. What we do know for certain is that God will do as he said. Verses 17 and 18 make that very clear. God has promised that he will repay Egypt for the incredible wickedness that they showed toward Israel. God has promised that Yahweh, the covenant one Lord Almighty, he will do the most important thing in the world and bring glory to himself. And now all those promises are coming to final fruition. God's lighting up his cigar here, and he's saying, I love it when a plan comes together, right? Seriously, God is bringing his plan together. Look at the summary by my OBU colleagues, uh, Drs. Hayes and Duval. When Moses originally tells Pharaoh that the Lord demands that he let the Israelites go, Pharaoh makes a fateful statement. Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Exodus chapter 5. God answers his defiant challenge dramatically. 
By the end of Exodus 14, with Egypt destroyed, all their firstborn dead, his entire army dead on the shores of the Red Sea, Pharaoh will know who the Lord is. Close quote. Pharaoh will know who the Lord is. As for Israel, God covers their back. Look at your text. Verses 19 and 20 reveal an eerie sight where God's angel and his inflamed cloud provide light. Now, many think this is a theophany. Um, that's a fancy term for an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus, God the Son, appearing on the earth before his actual birthday. Um, this text does fit with the formula for such appearances, and his Shekinah glory would explain the unexpected brightness that is shining through the cloud as the triune God covers their backs. And, of course, that's the big deal, isn't it? God keeps his word. He covers their back. He does not leave or forsake his own. When we're facing change, we don't like to break camp and move forward. True fact, true of all humans. Sometimes, let's be totally frank, sometimes that's because we're stubborn, whiny babies who want our own way, right? That's true. But sometimes, that's not it. We're, we're legitimately scared. We are afraid that we're going to be unprotected while we negotiate new terrain. It's actually not the future we're so frightened about. The future can look very exciting. It's that we're scared about the process of getting there and the fact that we're going to be exposed. Anybody here ever move when you were a kid? Raise your hand really high if you moved when you were a child. Raise your hands. Keep them up if that was scary. It was scary to move when you were a child. Okay, a lot of hands stayed up, uh, and a couple more came up, which is fascinating. Um, <laughs> I never moved as a child, for which I'm very thankful, but I think, I think I understand that fear. I felt a fear that I think is like that when we jumped off the cliff with 22 people and $3,000 to form Frisco Bible Church. And I'll tell you, frankly, it's not, it's not the future that is so scary. It is the feeling of being unprotected while you face the future. But for the Christian, for the Christian who is moving according to God's will, there is this blessed assurance. God has your back. Remember the Great Commission that we referenced earlier when we talked about our mission statement? Read with me what Jesus said to us. Um, oh, I went too far. Let's back up one. What Jesus said to us, I seem to not be able to back it up. There we go. Matthew chapter 28. You read the underlined text. Therefore, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always. How long, everybody? Always. Even to the end of the age. Our uh, discipleship pastor, A.J. Rinaldi, he loves this book, uh, Red Sea Rules. Um, look at what Robert Morgan, the author of that book, says about Exodus 14. He says, It is certain that we will face difficulties. And that God will allow them as he allowed the Israelites to become trapped between Pharaoh's rushing armies and the uncrossable Red Sea. But just as certain is the fact that the same God who led us in will lead us out. He is in control. Close quote. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. And thus, the waters are divided. Re read again, 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. This sets up cartoonists for an eternity. Um, <laughs> one of my all-time favorites of Bizarro that has these kids surfboarding in the, uh, in the wall of water, and Moses says, you kids settle down, this is serious. <laughs> and then maybe the greatest ever, the old far side, Moses parts his hair, that's just, that's genius. 
Jokes aside, God does indeed divide the waters of a massive sea. It's not necessary for us to understand how he does it. However, there's nothing wrong with seeking understanding about it. For example, uh, physicist Colin Humphreys, this fellow right here, he's made a lot of press the last few years with his wind set down hypothesis. Uh, let me share a brief synopsis with you from Sir Colin. By the way, he, this, this guy is a fellow of the Royal Academy, the Royal Society, the most prestigious scientific body in the world. Okay? He is a great, great physicist. This is not some piker. Look what he says. Wind sets down occurs when a strong, steady wind blows along a lengthy body of water that is fairly long relative to its width. The water level drops significantly on the windward side while a wall of water is pushed up on the lee side. If the wind continues to blow across the length of the sea, the drag of the water causes a gap to open up and expose the seafloor. This phenomenon is observed today in various bodies of water around the world. Among the candidates for the Exodus account, only the Gulf of Aqaba could have allowed such a wind set down to occur. Close quote. However it happened, God parts the water, and wind is indeed a force in the miracle. And that takes us to the climax of the story. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. Then during the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw them into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and, and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea, none of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. God saves his people. Three big lessons here. Most importantly, first thing, God's power is displayed. Verse 24 has one of my favorite literary devices in history. It's, a, it's an anthropomorphic device about God looking down. Of course, you know God, God is omniscient, right? God is omnipresent. But Moses loves this kind of construction. He really likes this uh, particular play on words used a number of times where God has to look down anthropomorphically. The idea is that God is so awesome, he is so high, he is so mighty that the highest exaltations, the most powerful things humans do, God has to go down to investigate them because they are that far removed from his greatness. Unlike humans, God has all power over human beings and the elements. He says, part waves, and they do. He says, drive like crazy, and the Egyptians can't hold their horses, right? Even they recognize his hand. This complete power is one of the signs that Yahweh is worthy of worship and worthy of trust. That's why it is such a big deal 1,500 years later when Messiah Jesus controls the wind and the waves and the people. When you get to Mark chapter 4 in the New Testament, it is designed, it is written in such a way that you are supposed to think back on Exodus chapter 14. Look, Mark chapter 4. He, Jesus, got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. Then he said to them, his disciples, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, 
who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him? God displays his power. And by doing the same, Jesus displays that he is fully God. Second lesson when God saves Israel is what we talked about earlier, that deep water armor and chariots don't mix, right? The, the Egyptian army drowns. They are destroyed. Folks, there is no need to be suckered in by the ugly hoaxes, and there are some of them that are very ugly, that claim that there's this great archaeological find at the bottom of the Red Sea. There is no accepted find. There are some shipwrecks that are fascinating, but there is nothing more. Someday, someday there may be some great find that supports this. That's great, but it's not necessary. For now, all that matters is that a generation that defied God has received their comeuppance, and all generations that defy God will receive the same. Listen, he is a God of mercy for those who turn to him, and he is a God of judgment on those who reject him because that's right. It's fair. It's appropriate because he's holy God. Remember the Hebrew word migdal? We talked about earlier, key word that they made up for this place. Well, later in Hebrew, they modified that to migdal, very similar, and it always carried with it this exodus idea of terror and tower. Look, look what David writes, Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Do you see strong tower? That's Migdal. God is a refuge for those who run to him, and he is a tower of terror against his enemies. God saves displaying his power, judging his enemies. Third point, God baptizes his free people. Israel's different now. They are christened as God's free people. They're no longer slaves. Here's a tip for you. All literature, not just the Bible, any literature you read, any movie you watch, okay, when the character passes through water, the author's telling you that that person has experienced a great change. They are different. That's what it means when somebody passes through water. It, it's not so much external as it is an external picture of an internal identity change. So, when Robert Louis Stevenson wanted to indicate that his hero, David Balfour, had undergone a massive internal change in the fantastic book, Kidnapped, Robert Louis Stevenson has David Balfour survive a shipwreck. He passes through water, and he comes out of it, and you see that he's different inside. Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon River, and he is no longer, after he crosses that river, just a consul general. On the south side of the Rubicon, he is now recognized as emperor, hail Caesar. The water shows the change. In the same way, Israel is revealed as different on the east side of the Red Sea. They're no longer slaves. They're now God's free people. This leads them to a beautiful response to the song service that we call chapter 15. Their freedom is put into song. Now, Here's the deal. We don't have time to read it all and study it today. We don't, chapter 15. But I gave you a study guide in your notes, okay? L look at it. I, I want to point out three things that I think will help you as you study chapter 15 on your own. And I strongly encourage you to do so. It's beautiful stuff. First thing to point out, freedom always leads to creativity. There's a number of new books that are examining this topic. I have been... Uh, I've been reading a couple of them. I find their arguments very convincing. We're learning that freedom leads to creativity. That is true in song, in government, in invention. You know, much of the fabled Protestant work ethic. 
appears to be tied to the fact that people in lands that, that were controlled by the Bible, people in lands that were Protestant, had a whole lot more personal freedom. And with personal freedom comes creativity. That's why Israel crafts this amazingly creative song, because they're free. Second thing to note, the male-led part of the song, very stylized, very, very carefully crafted. It is a celebration of God's covenant love. Stylized song, Yahweh's the theme, and it's his covenant love that is being celebrated. Look, here's how it flows. I put this in your notes. The first two strophes look back toward the Red Sea, while the last two look ahead to the promised land conquest, okay? Strophe one, uh, introduction, I will sing unto the Lord, and then you've got a confession and then a narration, right? Then strophe two, introduction, your right hand, O Lord, and we've got a confession again and a narration and then a concluding simile, a little, little picture for us. Strophe three, looking ahead into the, into the Israelite, and, and like the Hebrews love inverted parallelism, remember? So this one's going to be just like strophe two in construction. You've got an introduction, who's like you, O Lord, then a confession, and then instead of narration, you've got an anticipation, and then a concluding simile. The fourth strophe has an introduction, until your people pass by, O Lord, and then a confession and an anticipation. Brilliantly crafted. Final thing to note when you study this, the female song, that's in verses 19 through 21, it's a pithy exaltation of God. By the way, some scholars see this as, a, as an older song that's being reused in this situation, in situation. No need to see it as older, although it could have been. It's also possible that this female section was sung as a chorus after each strophe of the dude's song, okay? The, the great composer, Georg Friedrich Handel, he thought this was the case. He thought the girls sang after each verse. That's why his choral piece fantastic choral piece, Israel and Egypt, has a tenor who is singing words straight from Exodus chapter 15, and then that is followed by a mainly female chorus. Let, let me just, here's a little snippet, Israel and Egypt by Handel. All the hopes of Pharaoh went into his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Now the girls part. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. The, the point of the female singing, you heard it there. That's why Handel had it built. It's all about exaltation of God. Handel understood this. The male song's about God's covenant love. The female song focuses on God's glory. And that's supposed to be our life point as well. Think, we who have trusted Jesus, we're no longer slaves to sin. We can live to God's glory. We can live in His covenant love. Remember, remember the big idea, the, the first point of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Do you remember? Read, read it with me. Everybody together. Westminster number one. The chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That means that on this holiday weekend, as I feast and I celebrate, I do it for what purpose? To bring glory to God and to enjoy Him. Right? When I head into work, I remember why I'm there. It's not to make money. 
I'm working for the very same reason that Israel sang, because I am free to glorify God. I'm free to creatively enjoy Him in my labor. When I kiss my kids, when I spank my kids, when I run errands, when I wash the dog, I do all things for the glory of this one who set me free and loves me because of God's grace rescuing my soul. I, I can let everything in my life be about Jesus. Everything about Jesus, no, no matter the storm, I can glorify God and I can enjoy His presence. All God's people said, 